Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that we would get this glimpse, this um, awe-inspiring glimpse of your holiness and your righteousness and your purity and your justice. And with all of that, all of who you are, it it would destroy us to know that you loved us. And we are none of those things, God, none of them, that you loved us anyway. I pray for those who have very, very, very high self-esteem and self-image because of the good things they've done, you would destroy us today. And those of us that have low self-esteem, that think that we're nothing and worthless, that you would exalt us today. Show us Christ. That is the sun that melts the wax and hardens the clay. Show us Christ today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in this series on identity, where we get and where we find or where we form an identity. And what we said and what we've been saying over the last several weeks is that we tend to find our identity in three places, or there could be a combination of these three places, but basically, generally, these three places, what we do, what we have, and what we desire. This is kind of how we find, we tend to find as modern people, our identities. What we do seems to be the easiest since Most of us do what we do with most of our time. Whether it's our careers or our schooling, we find our identity there because we do it so often. We do it sometimes 50, 60, 70 hours a week. We find our meaning here, the things that we do, things that we produce. And the problem, though, the problem here lies in the fact that we live in a very transient city, a very transient culture. Now, if I surveyed our church or if I surveyed San Francisco and I asked this question, are you in the job that you'll have for the rest of your life or are you in the job that you want to have for the rest of your life, I think the answer would be an overwhelming no to anyone in here, no matter how old you are. Everyone in San Francisco or the Bay Area, everyone is moving towards something. Well, I shouldn't say everyone, that's... I'm taught that in marriage, you know, you're not supposed to say absolutes like that, but most everyone, okay? <laughs> Just a little marriage nug for you, okay? Not, don't, don't deal in absolutes, okay? So most everyone in here probably thinks, thinks, I, I'm not going to do what I do right now for the rest of my life. So it's really hard to find our identity in what we do because what we do changes. Or when we finally get what we always wanted to do, or we get the career we always wanted or the position we always wanted... By sacrificing our 20s and families and friends, we realize that career doesn't satisfy our souls. See, every one of us, every one of us is moving or progressing in our careers. And since we don't have family trades or vocations, we have a series of jobs and careers, a series of them. Now, just so I'm not too depressing as I start off, it wasn't, your career was never supposed to satisfy your soul, okay? Your career was never supposed to support your soul. And because we live in a very consumer culture, finding our identities in what we have or what we consume is also something very attractive 
and very easy to do. Things that we consume, things that we have. Those of you who are in advertising know how effective this is. Since most people today don't know who they are, commercials and products help you buy a sense of self. You can purchase an identity. You can buy products that fit into, that make you fit into a certain community. You can consume products that make you feel accepted. You can buy products that best express who you think or who we think we are or who we want to be. And whether we intend to or not, when we consume, when we buy something, we communicate several things about ourselves. Think about it. Next time you go to buy something, you communicate something about yourself. You communicate your worth, your personality, your affinities, your intelligence even. Even the most simple purchase, even buying groceries, becomes an identity statement. I only buy fair trade organic. And it becomes like this identity statement about who you are. This happens, and it's so subtle, it happens in everything that we do, everything that we buy, everything that we consume. What we consume becomes who we are, and the problem is consumption becomes a belief system. A belief that personal meaning comes from the things that we buy. It's like we try to find identity from the outside in, and we all know it doesn't work that way. We try to find ourselves in our work. We try to find ourselves in our consumption. We even try to find ourselves in our love. So we don't just work. We, work isn't just work. Stuff isn't just stuff. Love isn't just a desire. We try to find our identity in them, and we don't know who we are unless we have love or have job or have stuff. In this series, what I've been trying to show us is a better way. There is a better way, and it is difficult, and it is difficult for me because I'm just unearthing all this stuff even in my own heart. And the, the better way is this, not finding your identity in what you have, but rather who has you. Not finding your identity in what you do, but what's been done for you. And not finding your identity in what you desire, but who has desired, at infinite cost to himself, a right relationship with you. And I want you, and I want me, I know this is hard, I want us to find our identity in Christ. That is my hope for this entire series. Whether you follow Christ or you don't follow Christ yet, that you would find your identity in Christ. And I believe it's way, it's a very radical paradigm shift than it looks like at the surface. And I want to do something that, I, that I, 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 I've never really done before, so this could be a total disaster. Um, but my identity isn't preaching good sermons, church. Uh, <laughs> I just have a couple thoughts this morning. Things that uh, I've, been, I, I've been thinking through and praying through. I believe that we should form our identity around in Christ. But I couldn't get these points to coalesce, so I'm just going to rattle them off to you and discuss and talk to you about why I, I feel like we need to find our identity here. Now, again, I'll just say we're just laying our groundwork before we get into the rest of Colossians 3, because I think you have to understand what's been said about you by God before you ever begin to start to try to obey. So I'll rattle these things off to you, talk about why I think we could shape our identity in a healthy way around Jesus in these ways, then I'll close and then we'll worship and pray these points deep into our souls. First one is this. Simply, you are loved. You are loved. 
First John, or John 15, Jesus says, no greater love has anyone than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. No greater love. No greater love means that God could not love you any more than he does. Please lock that into your mind. God cannot love you any more than he does. He has shown his love to you. He has acted out his love to you to redeem you. And that love made flesh was Jesus who lived a perfect life, who laid his life down for our life, who laid his life down for you, and there is no greater love out there than that. But immediately what, we, what happens is this, because our, our identities are so wrapped up in what we do, we think, why am I loved by God? This last week, um, a good friend of mine, one of my best friends in the whole world, texts me randomly out of the blue, hey, I love you so much, more than you ever know. That was a text. And I was like, oh, that's so kind and nice. And that, wow, that's amazing. And then I started thinking, why did he text me that? <laughs> what, what, did I do something that he liked? Am I just awesome this week? Like, did he read something that I wrote? Or is it something that he approved of that I said? What, what's going on? Is the church doing really good? And so he's like, dude, you're doing good. I love you. And we start doing that. We start wrapping our approval around, what did I do? Why does my boss like me? Why does my friends like me? Why does God like me? What did I do to deserve this sort of love? And the biggest fallacy in answering why we're loved by God is this. I'm loved by God because I'm so lovable. That is wrong. You think, well, I'm loved by God because I'm so cute and nice and kind and holy and religious and smart and witty and cuddly. I am so, God loves me because I'm so lovable. Actually, the story of Scripture is you're not that lovable. (laughs) You're an idolater and an adulterer. You're a murderer at heart, and you're a liar. And you know you are. And we know we are. And we have this fear if someone really found out, if they really found out, they wouldn't be our friends anymore. If God really knew, he wouldn't love me anymore. But here's the gospel truth. You are that bad, but you are loved anyway. You are loved because God has placed value and worth on you and set out to redeem you by his love. He loves you. And the fact that you are loved says something about God and about his worthiness of him being worshiped forever. And it doesn't say that much about you. However, it says everything about you because you're loved by him. And this is the love that is not earned. This love is not deserved. It's a love outside of you, and it enters into the very depths of your being, and it can reshape you and your entire identity if you allow it. Henry Nouwen, in the book that we recommended that you read, you can read it in one sitting, honestly, get it, read it. He writes, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. Though the experience of being the beloved has never been completely absent from my life, I never claimed it as my core truth. I kept running around it in large and small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness. I I kept refusing to hear the voice that speaks from the very depth of my being that says, you are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. That voice has always been there, but it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you are worthy of something. 
do something relevant, spectacular or powerful, then you will earn the love you so desire. And this is true of God. This is true of our relationship with God. Okay, yes, God loves me, but he loves me because, you know, I said yes to him. He loves me because I go to church. He loves me because I basically do A, B, and C and don't do this. That's why. And you and I don't live out of the core truth is that we're loved by God. We are loved by God. Core truth. And if you neglect to live out of being loved by God through Jesus Christ as your core truth, you will begin to reduce Christianity to self-improvement. That's what will happen. You will believe in Christ and then you'll go, now I have to clean myself up. And it will be, Christianity will be all about you getting better. And then the better you get, the more prideful you get. And the more prideful you get, the more self-righteous you get, which is the number one problem people say about the church. Filled with a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. But we don't have a righteousness from ourselves. We don't have a righteousness from ourselves. Our righteousness was given to us by Jesus. You are not righteous. Can I just tell you that right now? You are not righteous apart from Christ. Which brings us to our next thought or whatever. You are accepted. You are accepted. Everyone in here, if you trust in Christ, you are accepted. And I think that everyone in here knows this. Whether they admit it or not, I've talked to people in this city that don't don't admit this. But it's there as they share stories about their lives and their hurt and their pain. Everyone, everyone wants to know that our existence matters. We want to know, you want to know, that your existence matters. I want to know that my existence matters. I want to know, basically, that I'm accepted. I want to be validated. And because of that, we make up our own righteousness. We make up our own rules to go, I'm validated if. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 10 about um, his fellow brothers and sisters, his Jewish family. He says, brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying is that because you don't submit to the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, because of that, we all, every single one of us, whether we do that in a very secular way or a religious way, whether we do it with licentious living or with a religious living, all of us try to make up a righteousness for our own. We all construct our own personal standing of righteousness by the way we try to be validated, the way that shows that my life counts, my life matters. Some of us do this by obeying. Your validation comes from obeying Christian morals, having the right doctrine, doing and saying the right things. Some of us, it's by self-expression. Your validation comes from being true to yourself and following your own sense of right and wrong. Um, This last week, uh, there was an article by Rabbi Shmuley in the Huffington Post. It was called, Why Powerful Men Can't Keep Their Pants On. And it was in the wake of all these latest waves of sex scandals. And I want to read a little bit from it. Um... Because I think it's pretty accurate on the way, and I know this is uh, pretty um, male-dominant, but it's actually can apply to, to all of us. That's, this is the point he's getting at. 
He says, he writes in this article, the biggest mistake we make in determining why powerful men cheat is to believe they are looking for sex. If it is sex thereafter, they have wives who can cater to their needs. No, these men are looking for something else entirely, validation. What makes men slowly climb the ladder of success is a desire to prove that they're somebody. They want to feel important. They want to be important. They seek to rise from the poverty of namelessness and the penury of uh, autonomy. It is not the promise of their potential that drives them, but their fear of being a non-entity. They absorb the noxious lie of culture bereft of values that only money and power will rescue them from being a nobody. Therefore, even as they ascend the ladder of success, they do so with a gaping hole in their center. And whatever accomplishments they try to shove into that hole, money, fame, power, it goes in one end and out the other. They never feel good about themselves. They are never content. They are defined by insatiability and characterized by voraciousness. Then he ends by saying, the first rule of success is that there is nothing on the outside that can compensate for the feeling of failure on the inside. But that article is very telling about people who try to fill their, they have all this money and all this power and they keep trying to fill this gaping hole with more and more validation. The fact is we can't validate ourselves. We can't even validate ourselves religiously. You know what's interesting? Uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, our, our, our community groups are going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about two ways to live, two ways. There's the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And all of us go, what's on that broad way? And you go, what's on that broad way is licentious living, loose living, immorality. That's what's on the broad way. And Jesus is like, actually, no. The broad way I'm talking about is self-righteousness. And that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. People that try to self-righteously say, I pray enough, I give enough, I do enough. And Jesus says that road is paved, it's giant and broad and leads to destruction. Jesus actually says during the whole Sermon on the Mount, the broad way is the self-righteous, self-justifying way. See, there's only one way to be justified. There's only one way to be validated. There's only one way to truly be righteous. That righteousness comes from Christ. And you must get this. This was um, several years ago. I, I studied this, and it, it changed everything for me in Romans. In Romans, chapter, in Romans chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read parts of this and I just want to share this with you. This was a huge paradigm shift for me about justification, about my own righteousness. How am I right? See, I didn't grow up in church. And so when I started going to church, I saw all these families and people that went to church that grew up in these perfect little homes where they all had dinner together and they all went to, to, to lunch together after Sunday. And I went home pretty much alone. And I didn't, and I wasn't a part of a family who loved and served Jesus and my, my whole life. And so I began to think they're way more righteous than I am. And then this, 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 this changed everything. Paul writes, what then in verse 9? Are we Jews any better off because they have the scriptures? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It is written, and I love this, as a heathen that was just getting saved, there is none righteous, no, not one. Even if you grew up in church, everyone. 
None righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use uh, their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace has not been known to them. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so I read this, I'm like, wait, so everyone's in the same boat. And you have to understand this, okay? Living in this city, living in the Bay Area, you have to understand there's there's no one righteous. There's no one better because they have a better sex ethic than you or a worse sex ethic than you. No one's better because they have a better morality than you or a worse morality than you. Everyone is thrown under the bus in Romans. Everybody. Everybody is on the same boat, and that boat is sinking. Everyone. And you must get that deep into your heart. I am no better. There's none righteous, no, not one. Your righteousness, whether you grow up in a great Jesus-loving church, you're not any more righteous or worthy of God's love than anyone else. Everyone. Everyone is unrighteous. This is, this is the, the two words that changed everything for me in verse 21. It says, but now. Okay, so everyone's under the bus. We're all dead. Done. Okay? And then Paul throws this in in verse 21. But now. But now what? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen? Changed my life. I realize I'm not worthy of his love, And I'm not any more unworthy of his love because I didn't grow up in a certain way. Everyone's sin, everyone's fall short of the glory of God, and it's a gift. It's a gift. And this is the gift. The gift is this. You're justified, you're righteous, you're validated because of what Christ has done. That is true about us. You have, if you've trusted in Christ, what's happened is this. Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection has been imputed to you, has been given to your account. You had a debt, and you were in debt a lot. A whole lot. You couldn't get out of this debt. Christ's account was so large, not only could he get out of your debt, but he could put an infinite amount of money back into your checking account. That's what it means to be saved by Christ. And so when this changes, this, when this changes us, <clears throat> when we realize there's nothing that I do that I'm more accepted, it's been given to me freely by Christ, God is pleased with us because of what Christ has done. And because of that, When you sin and you ask God to forgive you, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that he is faithful and he's just to forgive you your sins. And what's so crazy about that is that what happens when you say, I've sinned, please forgive me. Jesus is not up there going, Father, listen, just one more time. Just help him out one more time. Help her out just five more times. Would you please Mercy doesn't do that. He does this. Justice. I paid for that sin. 
justice. He gets to be, she gets to be forgiven because I paid their price. God is faithful and just. How can God do that? How can God just be just and justify? Paul writes it right there in Romans. The way he does it is through Christ's righteousness given to us. Now, so this is what it means. Now, you've probably heard this word justification before. And we normally say it like this. Justification means, this is Sunday school answer, justified never sinned. Okay, it is that. But it's more than that. It's just if I'd never sinned and also just if I have already completed a perfect life. That's justification. Not only justified never sinned, but just if I lived a perfect life, completely obedient to God in every single thing without sin and finished my race strong. That's what justification means. Jesus doesn't just give us a clean slate and then go, hey, don't screw it up. That's what we think. Jesus forgives us of our sin. Now we can't mess things up. A whole perfect life has been imputed to us, an entire perfect life, and that's true about us. I mean, this blows our mind. This blows my mind. I mean, the grace that you see here, this, the grace of God completely shatters everything. And all of a sudden, that's why the posture changes in Scripture. It's not obey God or else. It's since then. You see the difference? It's not like, okay, you better obey God or else. Paul writes, the New Testament writes, since then. What does that mean? Since then, this is your life. Since then, Christ is your life. Since then, you've been given righteousness. Since then, this is who you are. Since then, obey. But now. And this is what happens when this gets deep into our hearts. Now, I, I, want, I want to say all of this before we get into what we're called to do because I know at first right now you're going, wow, Dave, you don't really want a holy church, do you? I mean, this church is going to be like Crazy. If they think they can do whatever they want and God still loves them, it's going to be a really, be a fun church, but it won't be a holy church. So you don't want a holy church is what you're saying. No, I want this church to be the holiest church in all of the land. But I want this church to be not a self-righteous church, but a Christ-righteous church. I want you and I to understand that it's nothing that you've done to deserve God's love. Nothing. And nothing that you do that God puts more love in your account. Nothing. It's because of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, not yours. And that's why, that's why Colossians says, since then you have been raised with Christ. This is who you are. You are loved. You are accepted by God. Because of this, now operate and live out of this new identity. Do you believe that you can become a Christian and you can put your faith completely in Christ and have failure after failure, defeat after defeat, and see God face to face and hear, well done, you're perfect? Not because of your righteousness, because of Christ's perfect righteousness given to you. Do you believe that? See, that's the scandal of the gospel right there. That's the scandal of it. Do you believe that getting that truth deep in your heart is actually the beginning of holiness? Unless you get that truth, you can't, you can't be holy. It's not sustainable. You can't be holy because it won't last. But when you get that truth, then you have the power to truly obey God. That is the posture of Scripture. 
but this is what you must do. You must stop. You must stop trying to find a righteousness of your own. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says that our righteousness before God are like filthy rags. I don't want to be graphic here, but the exact literal translation of that verse are menstrual cloths. God says, that is what your righteousness is to me. You're like, whoa, what, why, why is God so graphic and bloody and gross? Why does God say that? Why can't God, God just accept a gift from us? This is why he says that. Our righteousness before God, the reason why they're filthy rags, is because it's as if you were given God a gift. Like C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, where what son asks the father for six pence and then buys father a gift and gives the, the, the gift to his dad. He goes, the dad's not six pence richer, but we like to think that about God. God's given us breath and life and sight and sound and, and all these things, and we do something great. We're like, look at, the, look at this, God. Look what I've done. Now accept me. Now love me. Now you better get me into heaven. Look at what I've done. That's filthy rags before God. Does God love our righteousness? Absolutely. But only as we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because we can't get ourselves to heaven. So you must give, put an end to your works and all your efforts to please God for your own justification, and you must exchange them for Christ's righteousness, his perfect law. Put your faith, put your trust in the person of Jesus and his perfect record and the fact that he died and rose again for you. I want to read one more verse of scripture and then I'll pray. It's in Luke chapter 18. Just to show you that I'm not just not making this up. Out of Jesus' own mouth, Luke 18, 9. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Those that had those filthy rags, it's like, look it, I'm righteous because look what I do. And God accepts me, and God better bless me, and give me everything I want because look at who I am. He says this. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Tax collectors are bad in the, in normally, and Pharisees are good. Not, not in the Gospels, but like culturally then. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he's praying to himself. He's not even praying to God. He's like, God, I'm pretty awesome. And I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there praying, text collector. But me, what I do, all the things that I do. And he says this. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he couldn't even approach God. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went away, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You cannot, this is, this is the way you, you get in. This is entry. Entry level is, and this is why, um, this is why typically people really, really, really start following Jesus and find Christ at their lowest point in life. This is why. Because they realize everything else, all the other structures in their life they built their life on collapsed. That's why. They all collapsed. 
And the only one that they can fall upon is Christ. And when you do that, this is what you're saying. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Repent. Turn to Christ. Stop trying to validate your own existence to fill that gaping hole in your soul. Repent and turn to Christ. And then Christ's righteousness comes upon you. And you're justified before God. You're validated. You're the, the, the truest thing about you is that you are beloved of God. Now, where does that go from sanctification? How do I be made more holy? That's for the rest of the t- weeks that we are in the series. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your grace. And it's just so, it's just overwhelming. I, don't, I, I feel like a, a total, um, I feel like I'm cheating saying this, God. Like I'm, I'm giving the answers to the test or something. Because it's so scandalous that you love us because of Christ and nothing that we do. And I know that the most religious person here is like, wait, no, 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 you better say this, you better say this, you better say that. But, but the truth is, we're accepted because of what Christ has done. And so, Lord, I pray that we would repent. Pray for those that have not placed their hope in you that are still trying to validate their own existence, to fill that gaping hole. Not only is it ruining their soul, but your word says that your wrath abides upon them. That there is something about we are, we should, we need to be perfect before you, and we can't do it. We need the perfection of Christ. And so I pray, God, that today you would impute, you would transfer over righteousness to many people's accounts today. I pray that we would repent of our good deeds, our wicked deeds, ways that we try to find life apart from Jesus. And I pray that we'd be free today to worship Christ, to drive this deep into our heart that we would operate out of this place. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.